Part 3 of Ball of Fat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ball of Fat by Guy Maupassant. Translated by M. Walter Dunn. Part 3. Read by Michael Robinson, Carbondale, Illinois. The women kept together. The tone of their voices was lowered. Each gave advice, and the discussion was general. Everything was very harmonious. The ladies especially found delicate shades and charming subtleties of expression for saying the most unusual things. A stranger would have understood nothing, so great was the precaution of language observed. But the light edge of modesty with which every woman of the world is barbed only covers the surface. They blossom out, in a scandalous adventure of this kind, being deeply amused and feeling themselves in their element, mixing love with sensuality as a greedy cook prepares supper for his master. Even gaiety returned, so funny did the whole story seem to them at last. The Count found some of the jokes a little off-color, but they were so well told that he was forced to smile. In his turn, Lousseau came out with some still bolder tales, and yet nobody was wounded. The brutal thought, expressed by his wife, dominated all minds. Since it is her trade, why should she refuse this one more than another? The genteel Mrs. Carey Lamadon seemed to think that in her place she would refuse this one less than some others. They prepared the blockade at length, as if they were about to surround a fortress. Each took some role to play, some arguments he would bring to bear, some maneuvers that he would endeavor to put into execution. They decided on the plan of attack, the ruse to employ, the surprise of assault that should force this living citadel to receive the enemy in her room. Cornadette remained apart from the rest, and was a stranger to the whole affair. So entirely were their minds distracted that they did not hear Ball of Fat enter. The Count uttered a light shh, which turned all eyes in her direction. There she was. The abrupt silence and a certain embarrassment hindered them from speaking to her at first. The countess, more accustomed to the duplicity of society than the others, finally inquired, Was it very amusing, that baptism? The fat girl, filled with emotion, told them all about it, the faces, the attitudes, and even the appearance of the church. She added, It is good to pray sometimes and up to the time for luncheon these ladies continued to be amiable toward her in order to increase her docility and her confidence in their counsel. At the table they commenced the approach. 
This was in the shape of a vague conversation upon devotion. They cited ancient examples, Judith and Holofernes, then, without reason, Lucretia and Sextus, and Cleopatra obliging all the generals of the enemy to pass by her coach and reducing them in servility to slaves. Then they brought out a fantastic story, hatched in the imagination of these ignorant millionaires, where the women of Rome went to Capua for the purpose of lulling Hannibal to sleep in their arms, and his lieutenants and phalanxes of mercenaries as well. They cited all the women who have been taken by conquering armies, making a battlefield of their bodies, making them also a weapon and a means of success. And all those hideous and detestable beings who have conquered by their heroic caresses and sacrificed their chastity to vengeance or a beloved cause. They even spoke, in veiled terms, of that great English family which allowed one of its women to be inoculated with a horrible and contagious disease in order to transmit it to Bonaparte, who was miraculously saved by a sudden illness at the hour of the fatal rendezvous. And all this was related in an agreeable, temperate fashion, except as it was enlivened by the enthusiasm deemed proper to excite emulation. One might finally have believed that the sole duty of woman here below was a sacrifice of her person, and a continual abandonment to soldierly caprices. The two good sisters seemed not to hear, lost as they were in profound thought. Ball of Fat said nothing. During the whole afternoon they let her reflect. But, in the place of calling her Madame, as they had up to this time, they simply called her Mademoiselle, without knowing exactly why, as if they had a desire to put her down a degree in their esteem, which she had taken by storm, and make her feel her shameful situation. The moment supper was served, Mr. Follenvy appeared with his old phrase, "'The Prussian officer orders me to ask if Miss Elizabeth Rousset has yet changed her mind.' Ball of Fat responded dryly, "'No, sir.' But at dinner the coalition weakened. Lousseau made three unhappy remarks. Each one beat his wits for new examples, but found nothing when the countess, without premeditation, perhaps feeling some vague need of rendering homage to religion, asked the elder of the good sisters to tell them some great deeds in the lives of the saints. It appeared that many of their acts would have been considered crimes in our eyes, but the church gave absolution of them readily, since they were done for the glory of God or for the good of all. It was a powerful argument. The countess made the most of it. Thus it may be by one of those tacit understandings, or the veiled complacency in which anyone who wears the ecclesiastical garb excels, it may be simply from the effect of a happy unintelligence, a helpful stupidity. But in fact the religious sister lent a formidable support to the conspiracy. They had thought her timid, 
but she showed herself courageous, verbose, even violent. She was not troubled by the chatter of the casuist. Her doctrine seemed a bar of iron. Her faith never hesitated. Her conscience had no scruples. She found the sacrifice of Abraham perfectly simple, for she would immediately kill father or mother on an order from on high, and nothing, in her opinion, could displease the Lord if the intention was laudable. The countess put to use the authority of her unwitting accomplice, and added to it the edifying paraphrase and axiom of Jesuit morals, The need justifies the means. Then she asked her, Then, my sister, do you think that God accepts intentions, and pardons the deed when the motive is pure? Who could doubt it, madam? An action blamable in itself often becomes meritorious by the thought it springs from. And they continued thus, unraveling the will of God, foreseeing his decisions, making themselves interested in things that, in truth, they would never think of noticing. All this was guarded, skillful, discreet. But each word of the saintly sister in a cap helped to break down the resistance of the unworthy courtesan. Then the conversation changed a little. The woman of the chaplet, speaking of the houses of her order, of her superior, of herself, of her dainty neighbor, the dear sister St. Nicephory, they had been called to the hospitals of Havre to care for the hundreds of soldiers stricken with smallpox. They depicted these miserable creatures giving details of the malady. And while they were stopped en route by the caprice of this Prussian officer, a great number of Frenchmen might die whom perhaps they could have saved. It was a specialty with her, caring for soldiers. She had been in Crimea, in Italy, in Austria, and, in telling of her campaigns, she revealed herself as one of those religious aides to drums and trumpets who seem made to follow camps, pick up the wounded in the thick of battle, and, better than an officer, subdue with a word great bands of undisciplined recruits. A true good sister of the Ratapalan whose ravaged face, marked with innumerable scars, appeared the image of the devastation of war. No one could speak after her, so excellent seemed the effect of her words. As soon as the repast was ended, they quickly went up to their rooms, with the purpose of not coming down the next day until late in the morning. The luncheon was quiet. They had given the grain of seed time to germinate and bear fruit. The countess proposed that they take a walk in the afternoon. The count, being agreeably inclined, gave an arm to Ball of Fat and walked behind the others with her. He talked to her in a familiar, paternal tone, a little disdainful, after the manner of men having girls in their employ, calling her my dear child, from the height of his social position, of his undisputed honor. He reached the vital part of the question at once. Then you prefer to leave us here, exposed to the violences which follow a defeat, 
rather than consent to a favor which you have so often given in your life? Bala Fat answered nothing. Then he tried to reach her through gentleness, reason, and then the sentiments. He knew how to remain the Count, even while showing himself gallant, or complimentary, or very amiable if it became necessary. He exalted the service that she would render them, and spoke of her appreciation, then suddenly became gaily familiar, and said, "'And you know, my dear, it would be something for him to boast of that he had known a pretty girl, something it is difficult to find in his country.' Balafat did not answer, but joined the rest of the party. As soon as they entered the house she went to her room, and did not appear again. The disquiet was extreme. What were they to do? If she continued to resist, what an embarrassment! The dinner hour struck. They waited in vain. Mr. Follenby finally entered and said that Miss Roussette was indisposed and would not be at the table. Everybody pricked up his ears. The Count went to the innkeeper and said in a low voice, Is he in there? Yes. For convenience, he said nothing to his companions, but made a slight sign with his head. Immediately a great sigh of relief went up from every breast and a light appeared in their faces. Lousseau cried out, Holy Christopher! I pay for the champagne if there is any to be found in the establishment. And Mrs. Lousseau was pained to see the proprietor return with four quart bottles in his hands. Each one had suddenly become communicative and buoyant. A wanton joy filled their hearts. The Count suddenly perceived that Mrs. Carey Lamadon was charming. The manufacturer paid compliments to the Countess. The conversation was lively, gay, full of touches. Suddenly, Lousseau, with anxious face and hand upraised, called out, Silence! Everybody was silent, surprised, already frightened. Then he listened intently and said, His two eyes and his hands raised toward the ceiling, listening, and then continuing in his natural voice, All right, all goes well. They failed to comprehend at first, but soon all laughed. At the end of a quarter of an hour he began the same farce again, renewing it occasionally during the whole afternoon, and he pretended to call to someone in the story above, giving him advice in a double meaning, drawn from the fountainhead, the mind of a commercial traveler. For some moments he would assume a sad air, breathing in a whisper, "'Poor girl!' Then he would murmur between his teeth with an appearance of rage, "'Ugh!' that scamp of a Prussian. Sometimes, at a moment when no more was thought about it, he would say, in an affected voice, many times over, Enough! Enough! And add, as if speaking to himself, If we could only see her again, it isn't necessary that he should kill her, the wretch. Although these jokes were in deplorable taste, they amused all, and wounded no one, for indignation, like other things, 
depends upon its surroundings, and the atmosphere which had been gradually created around them was charged with sensual thoughts. At the dessert the women themselves made some delicate and discreet illusions. Their eyes glistened. They had drunk much. The Count, who preserved, even in his flights, his grand appearance of gravity, made a comparison, much relished, upon the subject of those wintering at the pole, and the joy of shipwrecked sailors who saw an opening toward the south. Lousseau suddenly arose, a glass of champagne in his hand, and said, "'I drink to our deliverance!' Everybody was on his feet. They shouted in agreement. Even the two good sisters consented to touch their lips to the froth of the wine which they had never before tasted. They declared that it tasted like charged lemonade, only much nicer. Lousseau resumed. It is unfortunate that we have no piano, for we might make up a quadrille. Cornadette had not said a word, nor made a gesture. He appeared plunged in very grave thoughts, and made sometimes a furious motion, so that his great beard seemed to wish to free itself. Finally, toward midnight, as they were separating, Lousseau, who was staggering, touched him suddenly on the stomach and said to him in a stammer, "'You are not very funny this evening. You have said nothing, citizen.' Then Cornadette raised his head brusquely and, casting a brilliant, terrible glance around the company, said, "'I tell you all that you have been guilty of infamy.' He rose, went to the door, and again repeated, "'Infamy, I say!' and disappeared. This made a coldness at first. Lousseau, interlocutor, was stupefied. But he recovered immediately and laughed heartily as he said, he is very green, my friends, he is very green. And then, as they did not comprehend, he told them about the mysteries of the corridor. Then there was a return of gaiety. The women behaved like lunatics. The Count and Mr. Carré-Lamadon wept from the force of their laughter. They could not believe it. How is that? Are you sure? I tell you I saw it. And she refused? Yes, because the Prussian officer was in the next room. Impossible. I swear it. The Count was stifled with laughter. The industrial gentleman held his sides with both hands. Lousseau continued. And now you understand why he saw nothing funny this evening. No, nothing at all. And the three started out half ill, suffocated. They separated. But Mrs. Lousseau, who was of a spiteful nature, remarked to her husband as they were getting into bed that that grisette of a little Carré Lamadon was yellow with envy all the evening. You know, she continued, how some women will take to a uniform, whether it be French or Prussian. It is all the same to them. Oh, what a pity. And all night, in the darkness of the corridor, there were to be heard light noises like whisperings and walkings in bare feet and imperceptible creakings. They did not go to sleep until late, that is sure, for there were threads of light shining under the doors for a long time. The champagne had its effect. They say it troubles sleep. 
the next day a clear winter's sun made the snow very brilliant the diligence already harnessed waited before the door while an army of white pigeons in their thick plumage with rose-colored eyes with a black spot in the centre walked up and down gravely among the legs of the six horses seeking their livelihood and the manure there scattered the driver enveloped in his sheepskin had a lighted pipe under the seat and all the travellers radiant were rapidly packing some provisions for the rest of the journey they were only waiting for ball of fat finally she appeared she seemed a little troubled ashamed and she advanced timidly toward her companions who all with one motion turned as if they had not seen her the count with dignity took the arm of his wife and removed her from this impure contact the fat girl stopped half stupefied then plucking up courage she approached the manufacturer's wife with good morning madame humbly murmured the lady made a slight bow of the head which she accompanied with a look of outraged virtue everybody seemed busy and kept themselves as far from her as if she had some infectious disease in her skirts then they hurried into the carriage where she came last alone and where she took the place she had occupied during the first part of the journey they seemed not to see her or know her although madame lousseau looking at her from afar said to her husband in a half-tone happily i don't have to sit beside her the heavy carriage began to move and the remainder of the journey commenced no one spoke at first ball of fat dared not raise her eyes she felt indignant toward all her neighbors and at the same time humiliated at having yielded to the foul kisses of this prussian into whose arms they had hypocritically thrown her then the countess turning toward mrs curé lamadon broke the difficult silence i believe you know madame de Trelles. yes she is one of my friends what a charming woman delightful a very gentle nature and well educated besides then she is an artist to the tips of her fingers sings beautifully and draws to perfection the manufacturer chatted with the count and in the midst of the rattling of the glass an occasional word escaped such as coupon premium limit expiration Lousseau, who had pilfered the old pack of cards from the inn, greasy through five years of contact with tables badly cleaned, began a game of bezique with his wife. The good sisters took from their belt the long rosary which hung there, made together the sign of the cross, and suddenly began to move their lips in a lively murmur, as if they were going through the whole of the Oremus, and from time to time they kissed a medal, made the sign anew, then recommenced their muttering, which was rapid and continued. Cornadette sat motionless, thinking. At the end of three hours on the way, Lousseau put up the cards and said, I am hungry. His wife drew out a package, from whence she brought a piece of cold veal. She cut it evenly, in thin pieces, and they both began to eat suppose we do the same 
said the countess. They consented to it, and she undid the provisions prepared for the two couples. It was in one of those dishes whose lid is decorated with a china hair, to signify that a pate of hair is inside, a succulent dish of pork, where white rivers of lard cross the brown flesh of the game, mixed with some other viands hashed fine. A beautiful square of Gruyere cheese, wrapped in a piece of newspaper, preserved the imprint, Divers Things, upon the unctuous plate. The two good sisters unrolled a big sausage, which smelled of garlic, and Cornadet plunged his two hands into the vast pockets of his overcoat at the same time, and drew out four hard eggs and a piece of bread. He removed the shells and threw them in the straw under his feet. Then he began to eat the eggs, letting fall on his vast beard some bits of clear yellow, which looked like stars caught there. Ball of fat, in the haste and distraction of her rising, had not thought of anything. And she looked at them exasperated, suffocating with rage, and all of them eating so placidly. A tumultuous anger swept over her at first, and she opened her mouth to cry out at them, to hurl at them a flood of injury which mounted to her lips. But she could not speak. Her exasperation strangled her. No one looked at her or thought of her. She felt herself drowned in the scorn of these honest scoundrels who had first sacrificed her and then rejected her like some improper or useless article. She thought of her great basket full of good things which they had greedily devoured, of her two chickens shining with jelly, of her pâtés, her pears, and the four bottles of Bordeaux, and her fury suddenly falling as a cord drawn too tightly breaks, she felt ready to weep. She made terrible efforts to prevent it, making ugly faces, swallowing her sobs as children do, but the tears came and glistened in the corners of her eyes, and then two great drops, detaching themselves from the rest, rolled slowly down like little streams of water that filter through rock and falling regularly, rebounded upon her breast. She sits erect, her eyes fixed, her face rigid and pale, hoping that no one will notice her. But the countess perceives her, and tells her husband by a sign. He shrugs his shoulders as much as to say, What would you have me do? It is not my fault. Mrs. Lousseau indulged in a mute laugh of triumph and murmured, She weeps for shame. The two good sisters began to pray again, after having wrapped in a paper the remainder of their sausage. Then Cornadette, who was digesting his eggs, extended his legs to the seat opposite, crossed them, folded his arms, smiled like a man who is watching a good farce, and began to whistle the Marseille. All faces grew dark. The popular song assuredly did not please his neighbors. They became nervous and agitated, having an appearance of wishing to howl like dogs when they hear a barbarous organ. He perceived this, but did not stop. Sometimes he would hum the words, 
sacred love of country, help sustain the avenging arm, liberty, sweet liberty, ever fight with no alarm. They traveled fast, the snow being harder, but as far as Depp, during the long sad hours of the journey, across the jolts in the road, through the falling night, in the profound darkness of the carriage, he continued his vengeful, monotonous whistling with a ferocious obstinacy, constraining his neighbors to follow the song from one end to the other and to recall the words that belonged to each measure. And Ball of Fat wept continually, and sometimes a sob, which she was not able to restrain, echoed between the two rows of people in the shadows. End of Ball of Fat